Well, praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. What a wonderful joy it is to sing praises to our Lord. Uh, we are extremely excited for this morning because we're getting back into the Psalms. A summer in the Psalms. This will be a, the fifth summer in a row that we've considered these magnificent truths of the Psalter together. We've made our way up to Psalm 37, so if you'd please turn there in your Bibles. If you're visiting this morning, uh, there should be a Bible in front of you. We're actually on page 466, and again, this is Psalm 37. We have so much to get to this morning. It's, it's a long psalm. We're just going to read the first two verses, and then, but we'll touch on every one of them uh, throughout the message here. So if you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I know you just sat down. But uh, this is Psalm 37. It's a Psalm of David. This is God's word. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Do not be envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Heavenly Father, we are tremendously excited to dive into your word here in the Psalms, these words of David, but authored by the Holy Spirit himself. Uh, It's a joy to come together to open up your infallible, inspired, and inerrant word and be changed by it. So that's what we pray. We pray that you would change hearts through this text. We pray that you would uh, conform us into the image of your Son, even this morning as we read your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> Each week over these past, again, five summers, I thought it was four, but five summers, we've taken some time to consider the Psalms. And each week we've seen that even though these words and these songs were written some 3,000 years ago in ancient Israel and some well before that, uh, they're just as relevant and just as applicable to the lives of each and every believer living today. Because their aim is, like all good musical worship, to direct our hearts to the one who gave us our life, who sustains our life, and by his grace alone has granted us eternal life with him in heaven, which should cause our very souls to overflow with appreciation, to rejoice, to revel in and exult in the hope of the glory of God. And that's exactly what the Psalms do. They direct our hearts to true worship and adoration of the only one who is worthy of our worship and adoration. And this morning's psalm is no exception. And again, we're just going to dive right in here. It's so many verses, so little time. I do think it would be helpful, though, for us to have a a bit of a background on this psalm in particular because it's unique in a number of ways. So I'm going to give you five quick notes about Psalm 37 that will be important for us to know as we consider it together. Number one, this is a didactic psalm or a teaching psalm. It's a psalm of instruction. We'll notice in this psalm that there will be no prayers or addresses to God as is typical in the Psalter. Uh, The audience here is not the Lord himself. Rather, it's the people of God. The audience consists of the faithful, righteous men and women of our Lord. This is written to believers, and it's uh, proverbial in nature. I couldn't help but think in my preparation this could easily be the 32nd proverb, and we'll see why momentarily here. Number two, it's what's known as an acrostic psalm, meaning each section begins with a successive letter in the Hebrew alphabet. 
And we see these uh, scattered throughout the Psalter here. We have Psalm 9 and 10, 25, 34, 37, 119. They all follow this pattern. Nearly every other verse in Psalm 37 starts with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet in consecutive order. 21 separate meditations. Don't get nervous, though. The sermon for this morning is only five points. I'm going to get 21 points this morning. Praise the Lord. Uh, Number three, let's remember the author here, okay? We know from the title that this is written by King David, Israel's greatest earthly king. We know from verse 25, if you look at verse 25, uh, he's writing this as an old man. I have been young, he says, now I am old. This means he's writing from real life, firsthand experience, and he's passing it along to his readers, to us. He says, I have been young. I tended sheep. I fought a giant. I I conquered nations. I've battled with kings, both foreign and domestic. I've won the girl. I've been safe, and I've been on the run. I've known love, and I've spilled blood. And now I'm old which means he's writing this after Saul, after Bathsheba, after Uriah, after seeing several of his own children die, after a census and a plague which killed 70,000 Israelites, after all the good times and all the bad times, he's writing this as an old man who knows what it means to live as a child of God in this corrupted and cursed earth. He's writing from experience, which is exactly who we want to glean wisdom from, right? Right? That's what I want to know. Talk to somebody with experience. That's Psalm 37. Number four, this psalm is all about having the proper perspective in life, taking the long view approach in life. It's a warning against having a short-term preoccupation with the transitory things of this life. David is saying, man, think about the end. Consider your eventual departure from this earth, from this life. Don't just uh, think about your current circumstances. Have a long view, even an eternal view. Have an eternal perspective in life. And then filter your encounters and your experiences through that lens or through that perspective. It's a psalm of perspective. And finally, number five. The basis for this entire psalm is found in the first two verses, which we just read. And it includes the two kinds of people living on this earth. Okay, There's only two kinds of people. There's not rich people or poor people, white people or black people, Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, or or free. The Bible is clear. When it's all said and done, when all the smoke clears and the dust settles, when each and every man, woman, or child stands before their creator to give an account for how they lived on this earth, when they stand before the one who gave them life and sustained their very life, they will stand before him having lived this life on this earth as one of only two kinds of people, believer or unbeliever, faithful or faithless, child of God or enemy of God, eternally saved or eternally damned, the righteous or the wicked, okay? The righteous or the wicked, two kinds, just two kinds of people in this world. And that's who we see in these first two verses, David writing to the righteous and writing about the wicked, okay? Okay? 
And his message is this. Don't sweat the wicked. Okay, look at verse 1. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. So the first thing that David says in this didactive, instructive psalm is don't fret. Don't be agitated. Don't be irritated. Don't be vexed. Now I like it anytime my sovereign Lord tells me not to fret. Don't you? The sovereign creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth, the alpha and the omega, the end from the beginning and all in between. He says, Matt, don't worry about it. Teresa, don't worry. Eric, don't sweat it. Don't be anxious. Don't be agitated about the daunting circumstances and realities in your life right now. Endure, be faithful in them. But don't worry. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Don't fret. And specifically here, he's saying, don't fret over evildoers. These are the ones who do not acknowledge their creator. They do not seek to live for his glory. In fact, they are, as Paul says in Romans, enemies of God, as we all once were. Therefore, they are enemies of the people of God. But David says, don't sweat the wicked women and men of this earth. He says, don't be envious of them. Don't be jealous of them as they seem to be flourishing. This is an age-old struggle in the Psalms, really, uh, in life in general. Why do the wicked seem to prosper in this life? Asaph said in the 73rd Psalm, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He said, they're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. They scoff. They speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. All the while, he says, in vain I have kept my heart clean. I've washed my hands in innocence. In other words, here I am being faithful to the Lord, living for the Lord, living a mostly righteous and upright life. Here I am trying to live an upright life for the glory of the Lord, and I'm just getting beaten down by society. I'm getting mocked. I'm getting ostracized, sometimes persecuted here. And Frank over here, he doesn't give two hoots about God, and yet he seems to be prospering all the time. He's got a huge flock of sheep. He's got a nice new tunic. He's got a, <laughs> he's got a beautiful home. He's got an amazing wife, or in this time period, wives, plural. All the while, I can't even get a date. <laughs> Today, one, one might say, Frank's got a great career. He's got a huge house. He's got three new cars, an impressive portfolio. He's got clout. He's got accolades. He's got prestige, power, and all the other things this world dangles in front of our eyes and deems to be of value or importance. So how does this work? Why am I, uh, the godly man or woman, not prospering as the wicked seem to be prospering? This seems backwards to me. They should be brought low. We should be exalted. Leading us to ask the same question that Peter asked Jesus. See, we have left everything to follow you. What then will we have? In other words, what's in it for us? But David says here, don't be like that. Don't be like that. Don't be so short-sighted. Don't envy the wicked over what seems to be prosperity, good fortune, or abundance in this world. Why not? 
Why, Christian, do we not fret over the so-called prosperity of the wicked of the world? The answer is in verse 2. For they will soon fade like the grass. They will wither like the green herb. Because this supposed prosperity, it's transitory, it's temporal, it's short-lived, just like their lives. In fact, that's exactly what David says. They will soon fade like grass. Not the flock of sheep, not the fancy cars, not the well-paying job, the nice house, or the, uh, the status in this culture. Those things will for sure pass away, maybe even at some point in their short lives on earth. But my friends, David is not talking about the things or the virtues here. He's talking about people, actual men and women who will die, who will perish from this earth and prosper no more. In fact, it's at that very moment that when they will stand before the one whom they forsook in order to obtain the things of this world at the expense of their very everlasting souls. And then what will they have? Nothing. They will have nothing. And what will we have? Everything. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. That's what we will get, and they will get nothing except for condemnation and wrath. As even the common graces they enjoy on this earth will be gone. Then it's the wrath of their creator. That's what this psalm is about. Don't sweat the withering wicked of this world. They wither. Their bodies will fade away. They'll shrivel up like a branch and leaves without water scorched by the sun. James says that very thing. He says the rich man is to glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind, withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Will fade away. Job says, man who is born of woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower, withers. He flees like a shadow, continues not. Isaiah said, all flesh is grass, All its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. That's just the reality of life. All flesh is grass. Charles Spurgeon wrote, No one envies the grass. Let it ever be so green. No one envies flowers. Let them ever be so fragrant. For we know that grass must be cut. The flowers must wither. Let us look upon the wicked in the same light. Their time of perishing shall soon come. Their end hasteth on apace. Therefore, let all envying be out of the question, since they are such short-lived beings. Evil cannot last. It is a feeble plant like the grass and weeds which the mower's scythe soon cuts down and leaves leaves to wither in the blazing sunshine. That's the wicked. David reiterates this point in verse 8. Now saying, and you'll want to follow along here. We're just going to go right through it. Uh, Verse 8, now saying, refrain from anger, forsake wrath. 
Fret not yourself, it only tends, it tends only to evil. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. He says, don't get angry. Don't store up wrath in your heart against these folks. We, sh- we should pity them in many ways. They're, it's pitiable, as we were once in that same position. No, but anger and fury and vengeance is not ours to, to dispense. Wrath is not ours to exercise. Our anger and our wrath typically stems from wrong and selfish motivations, while God's wrath is a perfect wrath. It's a holy wrath, a, a righteous indignation all the time. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. So don't let him get you all worked up, is what he's saying here. Don't get angry. Don't fret. In fact, forsake it. Turn from anger. Turn from wrath. It's only going to make you miserable, and they're going to keep doing what they're doing anyhow. It's not like your being upset is going to change the trajectory of their life, right? I remember I stayed at my grandma's uh, place for a couple of months in my early uh, 20s. Single guy here. I wasn't really into politics back then. I had different things on my mind. But they always had the Fox News on, right? And at first I was like, eh, whatever. I don't really care. That doesn't affect me. But after a few weeks of watching it every morning, I was like, yeah, they hate this country. Is somebody going to do this? Somebody going to do something about this here? This is not right. Somebody should say something. I found myself getting all angry. This is 15 years ago. It's way worse now. It's because the media, they, they thrive on stirring up anger and controversy. What they do is they get everybody all angry at each other because it's good for business. That's how they get paid. That's how they push their agenda. On both sides, by the way. I'm not kidding. But it shouldn't be so for the believer. If we start focusing on the wicked and how they live their lives, how we think that their lives should be run, it will only lead to our frustration and anger because they don't have the capacity or the ability to live in a way that honors God. They can't do it. It will just cause to be us to be angry and not in a righteous way because ultimately when our focus is on the unbelieving world and how they seem to be thriving in this world unfairly. What we're really saying is that we think that we know better than the one who is, forever, whatever reason, allowing them to prosper, right? We're saying we know better. They shouldn't do this, God. <laughs> That's a really bad place to be. David keeps driving home this point. Look at verse 10. He says, In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But, notice verse 11, but the meek shall inherit the land. Delight themselves in abundant peace. So here we see the other side. Now we see the audience, the faithful of God, who will be characterized by their meekness. The meek will inherit the land. They will inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Oh, does that sound good? Abundant peace. Oh, this is a peace that comes with having the long view in life. It's a peace that surpasses all understanding, knowing that no matter what happens in this life, pain, comfort, sickness, health, persecution, freedom, Wealth, poverty, no matter what happens, their soul is secure in him. 
You see, unbelievers, they don't have this peace. They cannot have this peace. This is an exclusive group here. Only the righteous have this peace. Now, this mention of the land here in verse 11 and five other times in this psalm, we'll see it five other times, is a twofold reference. It speaks of actual land promises made to them, uh, to Israel by Yahweh, and inheriting the land of Canaan, promises which will see the, their fulfillment at the end of the age, as God always keeps his promises, always. But beyond that, it refers to all believers dwelling securely in the land of his rest. So an inheritance both in this life and in the one to come in the eschatological sense. The evildoer will be cut off. They will be cut off, but the meek will inherit the land. The section has been called the most direct exposition of the third beatitude where Christ said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now again, this is the opposite of the world's thinking. Okay, blessed are the meek? No, blessed are the strong. Blessed are the assertive, the powerful. They're the ones who will inherit the earth and they will take it by force or by their mass wealth, massive amount of wealth. But Jesus isn't talking about earth in its current state here. He's talking in an eschatological sense or the end of the age. Those who are his will reign with him over the earth when he ushers in his kingdom and paradise is restored. True believers are truly meek. It's a foundational characteristic of a child of God. Meekness does not mean weakness, by the way. It means having a power that is under control. Okay? Like a tamed beast. One who has power but exercises restraint. That's meekness. And it's directly related to forsaking wrath and turning from anger from losing our temper and flying off the rails. Meek people don't do that. Or if they do, they quickly mourn over that sin and they ask forgiveness. We are to be meek. S. Lewis Johnson once observed how sometimes horse jockeys after the race will say, oh yeah, this horse, she was very meek. Meek. Now, have you ever seen a horse jockey? They're about this big, right? About that big. What do you think they mean when they call a horse meek? You think that they're saying that this thousand-pound beast who can buck them into the next county is weak? No. They're saying she's extremely powerful, but it's a power that is under control. We love this horse. She's meek. She is meek. Jesus, when he was arrested at the end of his earthly life, uh, you remember Peter takes his sword out. He's ready to fight and spare Jesus' life, and Jesus says, put that back. In that sheath. Do you think that I cannot at once appeal to my Father and he will send more than 12 legions of angels? He says, I can wipe you all out with a word. But then how would the scriptures be fulfilled? That's power under control. That's meekness. We have his spirit dwelling on the inside of us, right? We have tremendous power. We can inflict a lot of Damaged with our actions, our tongue, certainly. But we don't do it because it's a power that's under control. So be meek because the meek shall inherit the land. Now we have to move on here, but that's the basis. So again, two types of people. You have the wicked and the righteous. 
And he spends the rest of the psalm explaining some of these differences, which we'll briefly comment on throughout. Look at verse 12. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees his day is coming. Again, the wicked can be contemptuous to the believer in Christ. They can be hostile to the believer in Christ. We've seen this even in recent months with the, and weeks with the LGBTQ movement. They're really a hostile and militant group. Uh, even the abortion activists today, they're just vile, volatile. Uh, they're fighters. But who are they fighting against? The one true living God. And since they can't attack God, they attack his people. It's like Jesus said, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. The enemies of God are of the world because this world is all they have. That's why they'll do anything they can to obtain the desires of their wicked hearts, including attack those who say, yeah, that's not going to fly with the Lord. You will give an account for the decisions that you're making here in this earth. Repent and be saved. They don't like that. Oh, oof. I've seen it. They hate it. But you just keep saying it. David says the Lord laughs at their plots and schemes. Isn't that something? The Lord laughs at their plots and schemes. He laughs at the wicked. Why? Because he has a long view. He sees not only their earthly demise, but their eternity thereafter. He knows it's all going to end for these people, including those who actively fight against him. This is reminiscent of Psalm 2, of course. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He just laughs. Same thing, the the Lord is in no way intimidated by the evil efforts of the wicked. He's not scared of these people. He just laughs, knowing that they will someday have to give an account, even though they pretend like they won't. David's point is this. If God can laugh at the wicked, can we at least refrain from being agitated by them? Or even worse, jealous of them over such temporal matters? He continues in verse 14, the wicked draw the sword, they bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart. Their bows shall be broken. This is saying the punishment that the wicked think that they are inflicting on God's people will only prove to come back on them in the long run. Like Haman who hung on the gallows he prepared for Mordecai, so the arrows launched by the wicked will fall upon them in due time. And their bows will be broken. Meaning once they perish from this earth, they will no longer have the ability to launch their attacks. And this will come to pass. As it is appointed for man to die once, and then comes what? The judgment. The judgment. Verse 16, we read this. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. That's interesting. Think of this verse the next time you're tempted to be jealous of the success of others. Better to be righteous with very little than wicked, many wicked, with exceeding abundance. You see the proverbial nature of this psalm here? 
He's comparing the two. They're two of the same kind, all humans, but different in terms of desires and inclinations of their hearts. Some might call it a juxtaposition. Verse 17. Uh, For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. The Lord doesn't laugh at the righteous. He will not judge the righteous in his anger as he will the wicked. On the contrary, he will uphold them. He will keep them, prosper them in the long run. In the long run, even if they must suffer here on earth for a little while. That's where the prosperity gospel gets it wrong. We will prosper in the long run. Even if we must suffer here on earth for a little while. We've seen this in our time in Acts, right? The righteous may suffer here, but our light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, but not the wicked. Oh no. Verse 20, the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. Again, this is life on earth according to the scriptures. Do you think about this? Do you think about it? Psalm 144, man is a mere breath. His days are like a passing shadow. James says this earthly life is but a vapor. So don't fret over the wicked. They're here today and they're gone tomorrow. Verse 21, the wicked borrows but does not pay back. The righteous is generous and gives for those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land. But those cursed by him shall be cut off. David then shifts from a comparison of the two people to a recognition to the sovereign Lord of all in verse 23. Look at the attributes of God mentioned in these 12 verses. He says, the steps of a man are established by the Lord. In other words, the Lord is sovereign. He directs our path when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. Yahweh upholds, he supports, he strengthens, builds up. This is where David says, I have been young and now I am old. David says, I've seen it. I'm telling you, I've lived it here. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. Verse 26, he is ever lending generously. His children become a blessing. Yahweh is generous. He is gracious to his children. Turn away from evil and do good, so you shall dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. There you go. God is faithful. He is loyal. He he has steadfast love for those who are his. Yet he is just. He is perfectly just and will hold unbelievers fully accountable for their actions. Again, we see here in verse 29, the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of God is on his, in his heart. His steps do not slip. He says the same thing in Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. Our verse 32 says, The wicked watches for the righteous, seeks to put him to death, but the Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Again, this is all about perspective in life. This is all about having a proper perspective here. While we may face trials in this life, even at the hands of our enemies, 
Those with the proper perspective say, yeah, but we know who comes out ahead in the end. When it's all said and done, we know the the Lord will both deliver and vindicate those who belong to him. That's why we have this peace. David then gets a bit uh, more personal at the end of verse 34. Again, as an old man who has experienced a life, uh, a full life on this earth, he urges his readers to wait for the Lord. Keep his way. He will exalt you to inherit the land. You will <clears throat> look on when the, uh, the land, which you will look on when the wicked are cut off. David says, I have seen a wicked man, the ruthless man, spreading himself like a laurel tree, a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I saw him, he could be found. In other words, I saw the prospering wicked. I saw him. I saw the athlete, the entertainer, the, these, these folks, and I battled with them almost constantly, and they caused me great pain and, and heartache, but before I knew it, they were gone. Sometimes the Lord just removes them in his sovereign will. That's what happened with David here. They were gone. He closes out the psalm by saying, Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. Transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is the stronghold in their time of trouble. The Lord helps them, delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. This is a common theme throughout the Psalter. The Lord being the stronghold of the believer in times of trouble. Let me just ask you straight up this morning, all right? Where does your security lie? Who is the stronghold of your life? What's your perspective on life? Are you playing the long game, taking the long view in this life, or are you living for the here and now? Are you giving any consideration to the life to come? As this life, this vapor of a life, this fleeting, momentary, rapidly fading earthly life is coming to its inevitable end, are you giving any thought to that moment when you will stand before the Lord to give an account? Let's get even more real here. I don't know how much time I have, personally. So I would be remiss if I didn't ask you point blank from one vapor to another. (laughs) When you read this psalm, you hear of the two types of people in this psalm. Ask yourself, which one are you? And I mean you personally. Not your wife, not your husband, not your children, not your sisters, your brothers, your friends, your families, your distant relatives. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about you. Your soul. You won't have to stand before any of those people on Judgment Day. If we've learned anything from this psalm, it's not to fret over other people's lives. So ask yourself, what is my position before a perfectly just and holy God? How does he view me? Forget the wicked. Well, how does he think of me? Are you among the wicked of this world who cares more about the things of this culture and the society, this current evil age, than you do about the things to come? Or are you among the righteous? those who know that they have sinned against the Lord and still sin. 
but now have a different attitude toward sin. We mourn over our sin while longing to live in a way that pleases him, right? And do you find refuge in your creator and the promises of his holy and inspired word? Do you seek to turn away from evil and turn to do good, not for your own gain, not for your own glory, not so that you can say, oh, look at me, I'm a good Christian man or woman. No, because you want to live for him, for what, for what he's done. Just ask yourself, honestly, this is the place to do it while you still have breath in your lungs. You haven't withered. You haven't vaporized. Don't see any vapors going up here. So now's the time to ask. Are you among the wicked or among the righteous? You say, well, how do I know? Well, what are the inclinations of your heart? It's easy for us to be selfish, self-absorbed, narcissistic, consumed with self. It's easy to be wicked. That's our default. That's what we do. That's who we are. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's who we are. But not everyone stays that way. For some, there's a change. There's a, there's a shift. Not only a change of mind, not only an intellectual ascent to the reality of their condition, but a change of heart, a transformation of the entire person. We were going this way, and then we go this way. Still sinning, but we know that our Sins are forgiven. There's a recognition that we have offended an infinitely holy God by our conduct, by our actions, by our, our words, our thoughts even. And this grieves us. This, this pains us. It terrifies us when we realize that we will one day have to stand before him to give an account for these things, even our thoughts. And this is not a bad thing. In fact, it's the best thing that can ever happen to a person. It's the best thing ever. A God-instilled recognition of who we truly are, followed by a recognition of who he truly is, which is revealed in texts like this, and then a recognition of who we truly are in light of who he truly is. And when that happens, my brothers and sisters, we will have no choice but to bow down before him and ask for his forgiveness. Ask for his mercy on us, to ask him to cleanse us, to wash us, to transform us, to conform us, to change us into not what we think we should be, but to who he wants us to be. Which doesn't necessarily mean that we start doing certain things and stop doing certain things. I'm not going to smoke anymore. I'm not going to, you know, all the Christian, American Christianity. It's not that. It's not this cultural Christianity. We're not going to do things to gain his approval or acceptance or justification. We can't do it. That's what all the false religions do. They say, you have to do this, you have to do that, you don't do this, you don't do that. And they think that they're going to obtain their justification before a holy God based on what they do. But that's impossible. Our deeds cannot save us. In fact, it would be impossible to please him in our own strength because he demands perfection. Perfection. Perfect adherence to his holy law. Which, which none of us could ever come close to achieving even in a single hour. No, the only way for anyone hearing my voice today to be among the righteous is to be clothed in the righteousness of another who was able to keep the law of God in its entirety. 
And the only one who is able to do this is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus Christ, whom David wrote about, he looked forward to and found ultimate forgiveness and redemption in, the one who accomplished that which was necessary to reconcile woefully sinful man and woman to an infinitely holy and perfect God by his sacrificial death, his, his substitutionary death and uh, atonement for sinners, his triumphant resurrection from the dead, his ascension to the right hand of the Father from where he would send his spirit to indwell those who believe in him, all those who are his, all those who believe in this gospel of forgiveness. David walked by faith. David was justified by his faith. He was, he was made righteous by his faith and he was forgiven of all of his sin, all of his transgression and reconciled to his creator by believing in the promises of the one who was to come. The same one that we look back upon who did come. One who died on a Roman cross taking the place of and bearing the penalty of sin for all who would believe in him and call upon his name alone for salvation. And now when the Father looks at the faithful, when Yahweh looks at us, he sees us not as wicked sinners or his enemies, but he sees us as his very own precious son. His sinless, spotless, perfect son. That's how he sees you and me and all who will believe in him and call upon his name and and as he welcomes us into the land, into the kingdom of God. I would ask you, is this true of you this morning? Do you belong to him Do you know you belong to him? Jesus Christ is the only way to come to the Father. He's the only way to receive forgiveness of sin. He's the only way to stand before an infinitely holy God, justified, declared righteous in his sight and welcomed into the kingdom. Do you belong to him? Don't leave this place today without being absolutely sure that you do. I I would implore you if you're not sure at this, at this moment, to turn to him by faith and ask, you, ask him to save you from his wrath in eternity in, in, in the lake of fire and hell. It's very real. Save you to a life with him in glory. Now, I try not to get too cute with the outlines, but I think I got a little too cute today here. Uh, we will typically let the text guide the sermon here. That's how we like it. But you'll notice we didn't cover verses 3 through 7. That was intentional. I wanted to save it for our application, application for the faithful, not for the wicked. I'm sorry, this is an exclusive group. It's only for the, it's only for the faithful. For those who do belong to him by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. David lays out the prescription for the faithful when we are tempted to fret over the prosperity of evildoers, and he does so again by encouraging us to take the long view in life, okay? Here's the proper perspective in life. Here's the prescription, okay? Verse three, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Again, we are trusting ourselves to, we're committing ourselves to another Fully, by faith, we have a recognition of his holy character, including his right to carry out his sovereign will. And there's a willing submission to or surrender to that will, whatever may come our way, because he's the Lord. He's our master. 
That's what happens. We submit to the Lord. The Lord's will be done. It's a full dependence upon him to direct our path, to guide our way, and to bring us to the place where we even have the ability to, as David says, do good. We only have that ability because he gives it to us. So trust in the Lord and do good. Then he says in verse 4, we'll go through these very quickly, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now again, this comes back to what we treasure in our hearts, okay? We already know the things that we desire in our natural state, right? Our hearts are predisposed to liking that which God hates. And if we remain in this state, if we go on delighting in the things of this world over him, if the preoccupation or inclinations of our own hearts are in the transitory things of this world, then that's what we'll have to stand upon when we give an account before a holy and righteous judge. But we don't want that, do we? No. Why? Because they're fading away. They're transitory. That's why we need a new heart which comes first by knowing, then delighting in the one who we trust has given it to us. And when we delight in the Lord, he will give us the desires of our heart. So what does that mean? Can we now say with Janis Joplin, Oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches, I must make amends. No. Because when we have a new heart, we will have new desires. Mercedes is nice, don't get me wrong, but we won't be willing to sacrifice our relationship with the Lord to obtain one or retain one. We will have different desires. We will have different inclinations. We will have hearts that seek to carry out His will for our lives because we know that He knows what's best, right? Our desires will be his desires when we delight in him, which is easy to do because he's exceedingly delightful. Remember Asaph earlier when we read Psalm 73? My feet almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, as if to say, man, the world almost got me there. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The psalm ends with these words, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. There's that peace that surpasses all understanding. There it is. The world can never give you this type of peace, ever. Are these words true of you this morning, my brothers and sisters? Is there anything on this earth that you desire besides him? If so, ask him to take it from you this morning. Rip it right out of your heart because it's not worth it. Trust in the Lord. Delight in the Lord. Take exquisite delight in him is what this is literally saying. Verse 5 says, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Again, commit your way to the Lord. Surrender to his will. Give it over into the hands of the Lord. Actually, this is best translated, roll it onto the Lord. Roll upon him your burdens, your troubles, your agitation, your irritation, your vexation. Cast your anxiety 
on the Lord. This is such a sweet promise and invitation by your creator which says, give me the burden. Put it on me. I will take this burden. I can handle it. Give it to me. There's no sweeter words to a weary soul than to cast your burden upon him. And this is by far, the, uh, this is not the only place he bids us to do so. Peter, for example, implores believers to cast all your anxieties upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Oh, my heart longs to be with the Lord. Come to the Lord. Cast your cares upon the Lord. Roll your burdens upon the Lord. Trust in him. He will act. He will give you rest. Finally, verse 7. David says this. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Fret not yourselves over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Be still, my soul. Be quiet before the Lord. Rest in the Lord. Again, Spurgeon said, that is the sweetest word of all, rest. Go no no further. Fret no more. Bear thy burdens no longer. Make this day a Sabbath to thy soul. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Don't be in a hurry. The Lord has infinite leisure, so partake of it as far as thou canst. Rest in the Lord be still and wait patiently for him. David says in this psalm, don't bother yourself about the wicked of this world and what they're doing and they're seemingly, as they're seemingly prospering because it won't last. The, the abundance and prosperity they seem to be enjoying are as temp- temporary as their earthly lives. Then comes the judgment. So have an eternal perspective. Let your focus be on the Lord. Trust in him. Delight in him. Commit your way to him. Be still and wait for him to bring you into the land, to bring you into glory. Wait for that moment when he comes and sets every wrong right, when he delivers perfect justice, when he judges the world through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that time, find refuge in him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray, and then we'll have Peter and the team come up and... Lead us in musical worship. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much again for the opportunity to open up these psalms, which are like, again, a balm to the weary soul. We, we are, are just so, so thankful, Lord, that you have done a mighty work in our hearts by your grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And we we thank you for these words. We relate to them. We love them. We see ourselves in them at many times, and we're grateful that you've strengthened us even today uh, through what they had to say. So I pray for anyone here who does not know you, Lord. I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that you would do a mighty work in their hearts, all for your glory and all by your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.